Amen. If you have your Bibles this morning, and I hope that you do, some means to look at the Scripture, I'd like you to turn with me this morning uh, to the book of John. Go to the book of John. This morning I want to preach a message entitled, What the Resurrection Brings. What the Resurrection Brings. And if uh, those of you who happen to see uh, last week the episode that was uh, aired last Sunday night uh, on NBC, the uh, series of AD, I, uh, you will hopefully remember some of these things. I'm, I'm not going to hearken back to the, the, the show. I want to just go to the Scripture uh, today and uh, touch on some things that we saw, but touch on some things that we see in Scripture. Uh, what I do like about this is that they are, for the most part, very true uh, to Scripture and don't in any way uh, mess with that or change that or change the tone of it, uh, but in fact uh, write and have written some things that are uh, based on the Word of God. And so I want to go today to um, the book of John. We're going to go to John 20, then we're going to go into John 21, and then we're just going to go another page over and go to Acts chapter 1 and talk about three things that the resurrection brings. Three things that the resurrection brings. In fact, without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there is no Christianity. I don't think you got that. Um, and that's not a joke. It is, in fact, reality. Without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Christianity is a farce. You can say, well, but Jesus said a lot of good things. But you cannot take one thing and leave out another. Jesus said that he would rise on the third day. For those who don't believe in the resurrection, those who say that the resurrection did not occur, you then cannot join hands with Jesus on the other side and say, but I really like what you said about how you treat your neighbor. Because even that is suspect. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, the Bible lets us know that your faith is in vain. Paul writes it very clearly. In fact, he says, if, and there were those in the, in, in the New Testament times, during the time of Paul, that was teaching, that had this teaching, that there was no resurrection of the dead to look forward to. And Paul says, if that is the case, then Jesus is still in the tomb, and if Jesus is still in the tomb, you are still a sinner say, but wait a minute, I thought it was the blood that cleanses. It absolutely is. But without the resurrection, brothers and sisters, there is no possible way for you to be justified before God. None whatsoever. So if there is no resurrection of the dead, he was nothing more than a good person who died on a cross. That's it. But the resurrection brings some things to us. The same way that it brought to the disciples that after Jesus was risen from the dead, you can know beyond any doubt in your mind, you can look forward to these things. And what is it? The first one 
is this. The resurrection brings adoration in the place of doubt. Let me just say it this way. The resurrection brings worship in place of doubt. John chapter 20. John chapter 20. And we're going to start reading at verse 24. John 20, and we're going to go from verse 24 down through to verse 29. The Bible says this, Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. He gives adoration. The resurrection brings adoration in the place of doubt. But before we get to that final point of this, of worship replacing doubt, we got to deal with the doubt for a minute and find out what it is that God does with doubt. Because I dare say that we are less gracious with those who doubt than God is. In fact, in in the Bible, you find that over and over again. In fact, earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, you will find John the Baptist, who is about ready to lose his life, finds himself in prison. And the Bible says in Matthew chapter 11, it tells us that John the Baptist sent word through his disciples to Jesus to ask this important question. Are you the coming one? In other words, are you the Messiah, the one that we have been waiting for, or should we expect another? Which is an amazing thing, given the fact that John had baptized Jesus, that John had been the one uh, who had declared about Jesus that this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John had been the one who had said, He must increase, but I must decrease. I am not worthy to tie one of the latches of his sandals. I'm not worthy to do any of that. And now John is doubting. What does God do with that? I want you to know this. First of all, He knows your doubt. Your doubt is not a secret. It wasn't a secret certainly to Jesus. When John sent word through his disciples to ask him about this, Thomas's doubt was no secret to Jesus. In fact, the Bible indicates that Jesus had not physically, and I stress physically, 
had not been there in the room when Thomas expressed all these things. I'm not going to take the time to read it again, but he says these things. He says, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. When, when Thomas said all of those things to the disciples that were there, Jesus physically was not in the room. But when we fast forward just a little bit to when Jesus arrives in the room, when Thomas is there, Jesus says to Thomas before he says anything else, after he says, peace be with you, he says these things. Here you go, Thomas. Go ahead. Touch the nail prints. Put your hand in my side where they, they put the spear and the wound is still there. Go ahead, touch it. Jesus hadn't been there, but I want you to know that Jesus knew his doubts. He knew exactly what Thomas is going through. Listen, you may have doubts about your life this morning and about what's going to happen and what tomorrow's going to be like and what kind of problems you're experiencing, and you might doubt whether or not God really knows what you're going through. Can I tell you, he knows your address. He knows your phone number. He knows exactly where you live. He knows how you go to work. He knows what you think when you, when you are at your home and you're thinking about all of these things and they're swirling around and the doubts rush through your mind and through your heart. He knows your doubts. He knows. You have to take heart in knowing that God knows exactly what you are thinking. You see, Jesus knew exactly what Thomas had been dealing with. He knows exactly what you're going through on a daily basis. The things that you struggle with when you're presented with truth and scripture and yet culture and society is throwing something different at you and throwing some other things and the doubts that creep into your heart. I want you to know that God knows what you're going through. He knows the doubt in your heart and in your mind. He knows what you're dealing with. Brothers and sisters, the Bible says, in Psalm 139, that he knows when we sit down and he knows when we rise up. He knows when we lie down. He knows when we wake up in the morning. He knows the most mundane things about you. Don't ever think for a minute that God is not willing to help you in the midst of your doubt. He knows your doubt. Jesus, Thomas had been very clear about what his demands were. He made demands of God, of Jesus. He had made demands on that particular day that he was not going to believe unless he could physically touch the nail prints in Jesus' hands. That he could touch the scar, the wound that was in his side when the, the, the spear was thrust into Jesus' side as he hung on the cross. He had died already and blood and water spilled out of that wound. He was not going to believe anything unless he could physically touch him. And there are a lot of people with doubts. So what does God do with us? What does God do with people who doubt? You see, as Christians, we can sit there and we say, well, I believe all this. And shame on them for not. But you know what, folks? I want you to know that Jesus never once says to Thomas, shame on you. You know, I expected a little more from you, Thomas. You're a disciple. I handpicked you. You know, what's wrong with you that you don't, you don't think the way these other guys? How many guys do you need to tell you they've seen me alive before you believe? No, you're not going to touch me. He didn't do that. The very first thing he did was, Thomas, here you go. Touch my hand. 
touch my side. You know what? He cares about you in your doubt. He's not looking to squash you. He's not looking. You know why? I, I want you to listen. Listen. Here's, I believe one of the reasons why Jesus allowed him to do this is Jesus was still in the business of making disciples. He wasn't in the business of driving disciples away. He was still in the business of making disciples. And the way that you make disciples is you deal with and confront the doubt in a way that will bring them to a place of adoration and a place of worship, which ultimately is a place of faith. Brothers and sisters, his doubt was going to be replaced by faith in just a short moment. But he knows your doubt. Here's what else he does. He speaks to your doubt. Look at verse 27. The end of verse 27, after he tells him, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand, put it into my side. Here's what he says. Now stop doubting and believe. Stop doubting and believe. You know, you would think, okay, there's got to be step one, step two, step three. We've got to have a process here. The process is this. Stop doubting. And believe. Jesus was very clear. Yes, he allowed him to touch his hands. But Jesus is going to teach Thomas and the other disciples an important lesson even about that in just a moment. But he says to them, he says to Thomas, stop doubting and believe. Why? Because doubting will always hinder you from progressing forward in Christ. It will always hinder you from reaching out and taking hold of a blessing. You can sit there and stew in your doubts and in your unbelief and you will never ever experience the power of God in your life. It is only when you say, Lord, I believe. A lot of times we're like the man who came to Jesus whose son was vexed by a demon and he could not somehow find any help to help him. And as he came to Jesus, Jesus asked him this probing and important question, do you believe? And the man said, yes, Jesus, I believe, but help my unbelief. There are times in our lives where there is that part of us that says, yeah, I believe it, but there's this thing over here that seems to indicate the opposite of what I'm believing. So, Lord, there's a bit of unbelief that's happening right now. I don't want that help, my unbelief. And he'll help it. He'll step into your situation and he'll say, stop doubting and just believe. Stop doubting in your situation, in your problem, in your difficulty, and just Believe what the word of God has to say. Believe what Jesus has to say. Now, what happens? Here's what happens. He touches his hands. He realizes this is not a ghost. This is not a figment of my imagination, nor of the other disciples. He touched, and there was a wound there. He touched on his side, and there was a wound there. And all of a sudden, instantly, his doubt went from doubt to worship. He says, my Lord and my God. I want you to know in that one brief statement, nobody had ever said it quite like him. Yes, Peter had said on occasion, on one occasion before the cross, before the resurrection, I believe you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. But in this moment, Thomas expressed something both of worship and of theology. You are my Lord and you are my God. You are God. See, Jesus is God. That's the one thing that we cannot escape. When we look at the Bible and we look at Scripture, Jesus is God. 
We have to remember that. And he worships him in that moment. All of a sudden, the doubt goes out the window. And there is his heart is filled with worship when he recognizes, yes, what I've heard is true. What I know, you know listen, some people arrive there shortly after you do. Some people arrive a long time after you do. Don't look with condemnation on their doubts and their fears and their difficulties. Simply let them know what the Word of God has to say, and God is going to reveal it to them by His Holy Spirit. That's what the Holy Spirit's going to do. He's going to convict of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment, and He's going to lead them and guide them into all truth. But I want you to know when they show up, there will be worship that will come to our hearts. That's why I believe With all my heart, we need to worship him more and more. Now, the resurrection brought adoration in place of doubt. The resurrection also brings restoration in the place of guilt. It brings restoration in the place of guilt. Go over to John chapter 21. John chapter 21. And we're going to read verses 15 through 17. John 21, verses 15 through 17. And the Bible says this. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Verse 16 says again, Jesus said to Simon, said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? (laughs) I've always wondered at this. Peter was hurt. (laughs) Can you imagine that? Peter was hurt. Because Jesus had asked him a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Restoration. Mark's gospel records that on the encounter that Jesus had with one of the women who had come to the tomb, who recognized and realized that Jesus was there, Jesus said, go ahead of me into Galilee and tell my disciples and Peter that I want to see them. Jesus was not interested in bringing all the garbage out that Peter had had committed before the crucifixion. He had not, he didn't want to delve into, now what was going through your mind, Peter? Because he knew what was going through his mind. He was fearful. He was a man who was afraid. And yet, it's an amazing thing, Peter was one of the closest ones of any of the disciples that night. We often forget that. We talk about the denial of Peter. He denied knowing Jesus three times on the night he was betrayed, but we don't see any other disciples hanging around. Peter was. And yet it's, it's interesting that in that moment, Peter is, is, is looking at all of these individuals and they're trying to peg him. They're saying, you know what? You were with him. You were with that, Gal- that Galilean. You were with that man who is now on trial, and we know the story. Peter denies knowing Jesus three times. And now in John 21, Peter is being restored. How many times? Three. Three times. There are three times that Jesus asks him, do you love me? But the the wonderful thing about this, and before I get into all of that, let me just deal with this. Guilt can be worse 
than the failure. Guilt can often be worse than the failure. If guilt in the mind and the heart of Peter was allowed to fester and grow, Peter would have been an ab would have been absolutely useless to Jesus. The one thing that the Bible says that the New Testament, in the New Testament and the New Covenant, that is written in the blood of Christ, that the blood of Jesus was able to do, you have to read this in the book of, of Hebrews, it talks about the fact that, that Jesus dying on the cross, His blood cleanses us from a guilty conscience. Something that the Old Testament sacrificial system could never, ever do. The blood of Jesus being spilled cleanses you from a guilty conscience. Luke records that, that after Peter denied knowing Jesus, the Bible says he went out, and the way Luke says it, he went out and he wept bitterly. There was something deep down on the inside that says, Jesus is never going to love me again. Jesus is never going to have a plan for my life again. I have denied knowing him three times, even though Jesus had already told Peter earlier that day, earlier the same day, you're going to deny knowing me three times, Peter, before the rooster crows, before that hour in the morning when the rooster is up, which, trust me, it isn't no 7 o'clock in the morning, folks. I've been on a farm. I have tried to sleep on a farm. And there are some seriously disillusioned roosters. <laughs> they have no clue what time you're supposed to wake up. But he says, before the rooster crows three times, you will, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he does so. You see... And then after that, he goes out, and the Bible says he wept bitterly. There was something deep down on the inside that says, Jesus is done with me. How many people got, are going through life saying, you know what? I did this. I did that. I've got this in my past. And you know what? Jesus is done with me. Maybe it is they've experienced the Christian, some Christian in their life who comes along, and they're ready to throw them in the trash heap. I want you to know that Jesus will never throw you away because of how you have denied him, because of what you have done. He's got a plan. He's got a purpose for your life. He wants to bring forgiveness to you. He wants to bring a hope and a future. He is not interested in hammering home your failures. People might do that, but Jesus will never do that to you. He denied three times, and now three times his love is affirmed. But I want you to see this. This is the most important thing, that restoration was accompanied by trust. This is difficult for us as humans. You can forgive, oh, but trusting, that's a whole other, whole other ball of wax right there. But Jesus told Peter three times, after Peter confessed, Jesus, you know that I love you. Yes, Jesus, I love you. Yes, Jesus, I love you. Three times, he gives him purpose. Three times, he shows, I want you to do something for me. Three times, he entrusts something into Peter's hands. He says, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. 
I want you to know, brothers and sisters, when restoration comes from heaven, it changes a life into what God desires it to be, not what we think it ought to be, not anything that we have to do in the situation. We would change uh, everything of how Jesus handled Peter. I know we would. If we got into the situation, we'd be like, Jesus, you sure about this? Peter, your guy, really? We'd be having seminars on why Peter should not, in fact, be the one that should be feeding the sheep. And he wasn't talking physically and, and you know, sheep on a farm. He's talking about those who would follow Christ, who, who are sheep and come after him and follow him as the chief shepherd. He says, I want you to do the job, Peter. You're the guy. You see, Jesus was true to his word. He said, Peter, I've given you the keys to the kingdom. You're going to open up the kingdom to the Gentile world. And in fact, in Acts chapter 10, he does that. He preaches the gospel for the very first time to Gentiles in Cornelius' house. God entrusted him said, I've got a plan for you. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, restoration is accompanied by the plan of God and the purpose of God. You say, but I, what about my past failures? You know what? Don't worry about your past failures. If it's under the blood, he's got a plan and he's got a purpose for your life to do something great and mighty for him, to be what God wants you to be. He says, feed my sheep. It is a statement of purpose, of trust and responsibility, and he is giving it to the guy who turns turned his back on him. We wouldn't do that. Say, no, Peter, sorry, I can't trust you. Maybe your brother Andrew would be better suited. Maybe John. He'll be the guy. No. He says, I want you to do it, Peter. And Peter's voice is the first one that is heard on the day of Pentecost to declare the great wonders of God and what Jesus has done on the cross. And the Bible says after that sermon, which most homiletics professors would just completely rip to shreds in Bible college, after that sermon, 3,000 souls, the Bible says, were added to the church. Why? Because of the power of the Holy Spirit in and through his life. I want you to know where this is leading, brothers and sisters, is it is leading to a great commission in place of hopelessness. And this is exactly what the third thing is that the resurrection brings. Commission in place of hopelessness. Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. And we're going to go and start reading at verse 1. And get down through, I'll just go down through, uh, through to verse 11. The Bible says this. In my former book, Theophilus, that is, Luke is writing Acts uh, as well. He wrote to this man, Theophilus, who clearly had been, probably was a Gentile. And Luke is written from the point of view of a Gentile to a Gentile. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up into heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. I love that word proofs because proofs is different than evidence. Evidence can lead to proof, but it is not proof itself. In fact, proof indicates it actually happened, it is true, it is right. 
He said he gave many convincing proofs he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. And if you want to stop right there and go to, you don't need to right now, but later on, go to uh, Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15. Paul indicates that not only during that time, he appears to over 500 people alive at one time. Verse 4, on one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then he gathered around them, or gather, they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He still, they still haven't quite gotten it yet. They're about to, but they haven't gotten it yet with that question. He said, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the the earth after he said this he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going then suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them men of Galilee they said why do you stand here looking into the sky this same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven commission in place of hopelessness. A little over a month earlier, they had been filled with despair and hopelessness. For three years, they had followed Jesus. They had seen his miracles and allowed their hearts to be filled with a hope that only Jesus can give. It all came crashing to a halt when they saw him die. And yet now, after multiple times of seeing him alive after death on the cross, it almost seemed too good to be true. Jesus was going to fill their empty hearts with more than hope. Say, what could possibly be more than hope? He would fill their hearts with purpose through the Great Commission and the promise of power from on high to accomplish His great work. I want you to know that Jesus takes us beyond hope. He takes us further than hope. Hope is wonderful. Take hope away from a person and that person does not want to live. But I want you to know that he not only will fill your heart with hope, he will give you a purpose. He will give you a plan. He will give you something that you must do for him. And that's exactly what he did with the disciples. Verse 4 of Acts chapter 1 says, and he tells them to wait for the gift of the Holy Spirit. He says, I want you to wait in Jerusalem until, as, as it's recorded in Luke 24, until you have been endued with power from on high. You know what I believe, and I spoke about it on Tuesday night, that sometimes we approach our lives as believers without the power of the Holy Spirit. We're not depending on God the way that we need to. We're not crying out for more of the Holy Spirit in our lives, and as a result, we fall flat on our faces. I wonder what would happen if this group of people right here would begin to pray on a daily basis Pour out your spirit, Lord, in my life. Let me see the power of the spirit. Say, well, is it going to give me goosebumps? Who cares about the goosebumps? I don't really care about that. That means nothing. There's nothing about that in the Bible. But instead, there is men and women doing great and mighty and powerful things as they wait for the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
Brothers and sisters, we've got to wait on God as never before. Believe in God. He says, I want you to wait for the gift that I have promised, that my Father has promised. I want you to wait for this gift. This gift is going to revolutionize your life. This gift is going to change how you look at people. It's going to change. You say, well, I, I, I look at people the same. They're all nasty. Well, I want you to know maybe what you ought to need to, maybe really what you need to do is you need to get into the place of prayer and say, God, let the power of the Spirit come upon my life and change me and make me what you want me to be. Fill me with the Holy Spirit and fire once again. You will be empowered for something great. He says this in verse 5. Verse 5, he says, For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 8, he says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. I want you to know the power cannot precede the Holy Spirit. The power comes after the Holy Spirit. Don't think for your li- in your life you can just go and do you know, your Christian thing and, and do your Christian duty without the power of the Holy Spirit. We need the power of the Spirit in our lives. What our city needs is not another church sitting on the corner. What it needs is men and women who are filled with the power of the Holy Spirit that when we encounter them, they might look at us and say, I want what you have. I need what you have. But our problem is, is we're too worried about what other people think. Paul says, I'm more interested in being a God pleaser than I am a man pleaser. I don't care what you think, essentially. And he didn't mean it nasty. He didn't mean it in a mean way. He just says, I got to please God before anything else. I want you to know when you care more about what God thinks, it's not going to matter what people think of you. Listen to what the Bible says. It says in verse 8, you will be witnesses. The Greek word that is used for the word witness, that we translate witness, we also use that same Greek word to translate into English the word martyr. All of the apostles, except for John, and there was an attempt made on John, but all of the apostles except for John would in fact die a martyr's death, telling others about the resurrected Christ. In fact... Let's go back to Thomas for a minute. Tradition tells us that Thomas, the one whose doubts demanded so much, may have actually traveled the furthest in service to Jesus Christ. Thomas ended up, and it is reported, at least Christian tradition tells us, that he may have traveled as far as India, where he would be killed for telling them about the miracle of the resurrection. Think about that for a minute. Not only that, it is also reported that the way in which Thomas died would be through a spear being driven through him. What he demanded of Jesus is, I want to touch where the spear went into your side. Yet Thomas would travel to the farthest reaches of seemingly any apostle that we read about in the Bible he would travel as far as India. In fact, Ravi Zacharias says there is a town that has a monument to to the Apostle Thomas. And in that town, it is reported that that is the place where Thomas died preaching 
the gospel of, of a resurrected Christ. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, being a witness for Jesus, we worry about what people think and what they're going to say when we start talking about Jesus and Jesus enters the conversation. Those apostles didn't care what anybody said to the point that they lost their lives. They went before, as Paul did, went before Nero. He would lose his life. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, being a witness for Jesus carries a great weight. It carries a great, great responsibility. But I want you to know that you will testify of the greatest things. You say, what a waste. No, here we are some couple thousand years later. We are preaching the gospel. We're listening to the gospel. We are reading the gospel. Why? Because some men and women said, this resurrected Christ is worth going out and preaching about. It is worth going out and telling others about Him. We will do what He said we should do. Some have yet to allow the doubt to be replaced by adoration. Yet if you listen to the words of Jesus and allow them into your heart, I believe that you can be a worshiper rather than a doubter. When Jesus says these words to Thomas, we didn't read it But go back over to John 20 and verse 29, and we have, I think, the most important message of the moment. What it is that Jesus said to Thomas in verse 29. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That's you. That's you. We've never touched the nail prints in his hands. We've never put our hand upon his side. And yet we stand here and sit here today believing. And I hope that all of you are believers, though I have my doubts, maybe that there might be some in this building who have yet come to that place of full repentance before God. But I want to tell you something. You believe now you will be blessed. The Bible says so. He says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Or it could be that guilt rules your mind. Yet you need to know that the resurrection can restore relationship with Him and dispel those thoughts and feelings of guilt. Like Paul, you can state with absolute clarity there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Or finally, it could be your hopeless situation that keeps you from feeling that God has a plan for your life. Still, the resurrected Christ points to the future of what the disciples will accomplish through His power rather than dwelling on the past of what things used to be like. God has a greater purpose for your life than you simply letting life pass you by. He desires to empower you to be His witness to the world. More than ever before, the world that we live in, brothers and sisters, does not need another message of hopelessness. It needs a message of hope, and it needs men and women who are willing to stand their ground and say, we have that message of hope. It's found only in Jesus Christ. Can we bow our heads today? I want you to search your hearts right now and ask the Lord to give you a picture of what your life is like at the moment. And don't let any devil from hell lie to you and say, it's all it's ever going to be. All it's ever going to be. But instead, say, Lord, my hope and my trust is in you. It's going to be in your great power. It's going to be in your resurrection power. 
what it is that you're able to bring to my life because you rose from the grave and you are alive today. Father, in the name of Jesus, we come to you right now. We give you our pain. We give you our doubts. We give you our guilt. We give you our problems. We give you our sins. We give you those things, Lord, that stand in the way of, of being what you want us to be. And Lord, we ask that right now you would help us to be men and women who would rise up in our generation, Lord, and bring about a wonderful, mighty move of God like we have never known before. Lord, we're tired of hearing about the past. We want to experience something now, something in this moment in time. Lord, the world is clamoring for what is true, what is right, what is what they can stake their lives on. So Jesus, I ask that you would help us, Lord, to rise to the challenge, to dispel the doubts in our minds, to get rid of the guilt, O oh God, that rules us. And Lord, let the power of the Holy Spirit come upon us. May we be true worshipers in an age where people go after other things, O oh God. May we worship You with all of our heart, our soul, and our mind. Lord, I pray that if there is anybody in this building right now that is yet to give their life to You, Jesus, that right now they would breathe a prayer of repentance. That right now they would say, Jesus, come into my heart and forgive me of my sins and wash me clean, O God, and help me to live for You. May they know the purpose that You have for them. And God, we're going to give You all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Praise the name of the Lord.